really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby. As always, I am your host. My name is David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, well, you know what? I would love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast. And you can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So we didn't have a ton of rugby to watch this weekend, but the rugby we did have, oh my word, it was special. So that being said, let's start the show. So as always, we start with our current updates. And, you know, on a, on a very personal level this week, it's been a bit emotional, really. Regular listeners will recall that I, I lost a great friend just days before Christmas this past December. Her absence in my life has has been really difficult. It's been at least as difficult for my best friend as well, who is probably even closer to her. And, there, you know, there's just a, t- a ton of people I know and love who, who have been fairly devastated by Jessica's passing. So the positive news is my best friend and I organized a, a little a little tribute, I guess, a little celebration of life, as we called it, to give this group of far-flung people a chance to all get together and share our memories and stories and, I, I guess, just our feelings after being, you know, without our dear friend for about a half a year now. So we all gathered out on the common and beautiful and historic Salem, Massachusetts, the town where I spent the majority of my life and where we all became friends. At first, uh, it turned out to be a phenomenal day with just mountainous clouds drifting lazily across the azure sky. We played music and talked and our various kids played with these massive bubble wands. And it, it was just a lovely time. It was a whole afternoon to reconnect and share the different pieces of our lives that had been made better by a woman who meant so much to each and every one of us. I just couldn't be happier with how it all unfolded. Jess, wherever you are, we all love you so much, and it was a privilege to be able to share in so many great memories. You are, and always will be, greatly missed, my dear friend. It's too good. It's too good. People have to know. Well, Isa, it, it certainly is good news, if you're an All Blacks fan at least. So the ABs will have one fewer top player to contend with in their truncated upcoming tournament, as Marcos Crema will not be available to play for Argentina. So quoting here, quote, the All Blacks have received a little help from the French judiciary ahead of the start of their rugby championship campaign as Los Pumas enforcer Marcos Crema has been handed a lengthy ban. All of the rugby championship rivals will benefit from Crema's absence, but arguably none more so than New Zealand. The 25-year-old Argentine has been a thorn in the side of the All Blacks since 2020, featuring heavily in the two wins the Pumas have registered over New Zealand. On both occasions, he logged over 20 tackles as part of a dominant defense which shut out the All Blacks' attack. The fiery flanker has locked horns with flankers Akira Iwane and Shannon Frizzell in the past, not afraid to get confrontational while manhandling the All Blacks' pack. He will now miss the chance to beat the All Blacks for a third time when they travel to Mendoza after being handed a five-week suspension after receiving a red card in his last game for Stade Francais. 
Crema was found responsible for, quote, dangerous play, unquote, by the disciplinary committee for head contact on Scottish fly half Finn Russell. Yeah, no kidding. During a clean out due to his poor disciplinary uh, disciplinary record, the committee recommended an increase in the sanction before reducing the penalty due to Crema's guilty plea and remorse. Ugh, the whole system is so screwy. Quote, it is the median degree of the scale of gravity which was retained. That is to say, a suspension of six weeks, unquote, the verdict statement said. Quote, after taking into account the ag aggravating circumstance, disciplinary record, the sanction was increased by two weeks. Considering the mitigating circumstances, <laughs> acknowledgement of guilt, conduct before and during the hearing, and expression of remorse, the sanction has been reduced by three weeks. Therefore, Mr. Marcos Crema is suspended for five weeks, unquote. Yeah, it, it really can't be more clear than that, right? <sighs> anyway, with the top 14 season finished, Kremer's suspension is untimely for the Pumas, who will miss the flanker for the entirety of the rugby championship. Argentina play an extra fixture against the Springboks following the conclusion of that tournament and one warm-up fixture against Spain, which would account for five games. An Argentinian 15 also play against Namibia, Chile twice, and Uruguay, but it is unclear whether those would count for Kremer. Unquote. So, I mean, anyone who watched him sobbing in the locker room after that latest card knows the remorse is very, very real. But come on, man. You, you know that line you're just never supposed to cross? Look behind you, dude. So moving on to our thoughts of the week. And you know what? My thoughts this week are on the sort of intriguing mix of players we find making up the Springboks squad as we head towards the next boringly named rugby championship and ultimately the Rugby World Cup in September. So quoting here from geocities.com slash rugby pass, quote, South Africa's potential lies in its diversity. And though corrupt politicians and bigoted citizens have yet to harness this energy, the Springboks certainly have. Their World Cup win in 1995 helped tear down social and cultural barricades, even if temporarily, and is still regarded as an important cornerstone of Nelson Mandela's nation-building project, since then a multi-ethnic side has claimed two more World Cups, setting an example and inspiring the rest of the country. But diversity does not just relate to the squad's melanin count or the languages they speak, awkward sentence, uh, of all the teams with a realistic chance of lift, lifting the Webb Ellis Cup in France later this year, the Springboks are unquestionably the most assorted bunch by a distance. From the recent 41-man training group that gathered for some pre-rugby championship fine-tuning, as many as 19 different clubs from five different countries and four different leagues are represented. There are locks who play in Ireland, a scrum half who plays in Japan, a center based in England, and a prop who earns a living in France. Up and down the team, in every combination on the pitch, players who spend most of their rugby playing days in disparate lands must come together and find something resembling cohesion. Andy Farrell's Ireland, don't have to worry about that. They're effectively a Leinster side with a few players from other provinces thrown in the mix. And though the England, New Zealand, and France squads are more, more diverse in terms of the number of club sides present, uh, they're all familiar with each other given they play in the same leagues. Traditionally, World Cups have been won by relatively homogenous groups. The victorious All Blacks in 1987 had representatives from six clubs, but that shrunk down to four and five in 2011 and 2015, respectively, once the franchise system was introduced. Australia's two wins in 91 and 99, as well as South Africans' uh, success in 95 and 2007, were procured by squads made up of entirely home-based talent. England's triumph in 2003... <sighs> 
stands out for having a solitary foreign-based player in Dan Luger, the winger who had only just made the move from Harlequins to Perpignan before the World Cup kicked off in October that year. But this was an exception that otherwise underlined a clear trend. It wasn't until 2019, when Sia Khaleesi's team steamrolled England and Yokohama, oh my god, it was so good, that things really took a turn. Four years ago, the Springboks went to Japan with players under the banner of 12 clubs from four countries, South Africa, Japan, France, and England. Conventional wisdom suggested that they should have struggled for synchronicity, unquote. There's a lot more to this, and I I really liked this article. I found it really interesting. I think it's, you know, it's proof positive of why they are truly the rainbow nation now, despite, you know, a very dark past or a very white one, I guess. Okay, my friends, that brings us to our reviews for the week. You know, in the competitions we typically follow here, we're down to the very bare bones with only the Super Rugby Pacific Grand Final and the two Eliminator games back home in the MLR. However, before we get into those competitions, I thought, you know, I thought I'd at least provide some end of season coverage and some start of season coverage for a couple of competitions I haven't traditionally followed here. So first, here in the United States, the Premier Rugby Sevens has kicked back into gear, and we had the Eastern Conference kickoff last weekend, not this one, but the weekend before. A uh, quick word about the format here. So in the East, there are eight teams. Uh, actually, I should say both conferences, there are eight teams. There's four women's and four men's teams, and they share team names. In this conference, the East, uh, we have the Steel Toes, the Headliners, the Locals, and the team simply called Team. So in the opening round, the women's Headliners beat the Steel Toes while the Locals beat the Team. That set up a consolation match between the Steel Toes and the Team, which the Steel Toes won 22-0. That left us with our final where the headliners beat the locals by a rush album. It was 21 to 12. On the men's side of things, the locals beat the Steel Toes while the team beat the headliners. The consolation game saw the Steel Toes really do a number on the headliners, 36 to 7, 36 being the highest points total for the entire round. In the men's final, the team barely edged out the locals, 19 to 22, to finish off opening weekend. So, I really enjoyed watching this competition last year. I've been looking forward to it as, you know, to its return for a good while now. And I really don't want to criticize a nascent uh, league like this, especially here in the United States, but they've got to get their website in order. It's just, it's not good. So for instance, when I was writing this, it mysteriously said that every team that just played went two and two for the weekend. Obviously not the case. Um, it lists points against, but not points for. Uh, it does have a column for the points differential, so you'd think you could just do the math, but that column lists zero for every single team. I don't think that there was a zero points differential. Anyway, I'm hoping they make it a little easier to follow this competition because there's so much positive energy behind it right now. I'm hoping to get Owen Scannell on to maybe explain things a little bit sometime soon, but I haven't actually been able to get in touch with him yet. Stay tuned for sure. I'm also very much hoping to get some of the incredible stars from this league to come on and chat. But again, it's all TBD. Please stay tuned. So this weekend, it was the Western Conference's turn to get underway. I have to say, it was a very near thing. Two hours before recording, their official website still said, get tickets, rather than view results. But give them all the credit. I posted on Twitter just about this very thing. 
just before I sat down right now, Owen Scannell, aforementioned CEO himself, replied saying the site had been updated and that they would keep on top of it from here on out. I mean, that is awesome. I'm very keen to follow this competition this year. So it's just great to know there are exceptionally competent people at the helm. Lovely stuff. So for the men's side of things, the experts beat the rhinos slash loggerheads. By the way, another side note, if any of you can explain that team to me, please do. My, my best guess is it's two teams kind of mashed together, but I honestly don't know. Um, anyway, 19 to 26 in that one, while the loonies went down to the retrievers 7 to 12 for our semifinal round. Well, for the women, the Retrievers beat the Rhinos slash Loggerheads in a close one. It was 22 to 19. The Loonies barely edged out the experts 12 to 10. The men's Rhinos Loggerheads team lost the consolation game 7 to 19 to the Loonies. And the women's double team, I'll just call them that, beat the experts 22 to 17. That set up our first Western final, where for the men, the experts claimed victory 22 to 19 over the Retrievers. And in a very tight one, the women's retrievers just lost to the loonies seven to ten. First two rounds in the books. I am thoroughly ready for more. So also, and meanwhile, down in South Africa, we had finally gotten down to the end of another Curry Cup season. This year, the eight teams comprising the Premier Division were, in alphabetical order, the Bulls, the Cheetahs, the Griffins, the Griquas, the Lions, the Pumas, the Sharks, and Western Province. By the end of the regular season, the Cheetahs were on top with 51 table points. The Griffins were at the bottom with just 10. In between were the Sharks, the Pumas, the Bulls, Western Province, the Lions, and the Griquas in that descending order. Oh, sorry about that, Coach Matthew. So that meant we had semifinals of the Cheetahs at home in Bloemfontein for the Bulls and the Sharks in Durban for the Pumas. Those matches played out last week uh, with the Cheetahs taking care of business pretty handily, smacking around the Bulls to the tune of 39-10. to But then it was the Pumas getting a big upset over the Sharks as they came away 20-26 to winners. The Pumas actually didn't score after minute 57, but Sharks couldn't find even a single point in those final 23 minutes. That, of course meant we had the Cheetahs at Toyota Stadium to face the upstart Pumas for the grand final this Saturday. And for a bit of background, I found a couple of tidbits on Rugby 365. So, quote, the Pumas were a mere infant when compared to the rich Curry Cup history of the Cheetahs. One union was founded in 1895, the other almost a century later in 1969. Yet, when they face off in the Curry Cup final in Bloemfontein on Saturday, the scoreboard, scoreboard will read zero all before kickoff. However, in the tail of the tape stats, the Cheetahs tower over the Pumas, who won their only title in their maiden final appearance last year. At least they have a 100% record in the Curry Cup Finals. The Cheetahs, including their days as Orange Free State as Slash Free State, have won six titles, one shared, nine times run runners-up, and 13 times losing semifinalists. Their most recent title was their 31-28 win over the Lions in Bloemfontein in 2019. The Pumas, including their days as Southeastern Transvaal, featured in one final only, beating the Griquas 26-19 in Kimberley last year, and had one previous appearance in a semifinal, a 6-49 loss, to eventual champions Northern Transvaal in Pretoria in 1980. On Saturday, <laughs> I really had to laugh. We've, we've all been hearing about the desperate condition of some of these pitches in South Africa right now, so what do they do right at the start? Why? 
bring in a parade of Harley Davidsons, of course. Did they just, you know, drive around the edges kind of near the stands so as to make sure they didn't damage the playing surface, you ask? Oh, oh my, no, no, no. They, they drove all over the pitch, eventually lining up on either side of the halfway mark. Just madness. I don't get it. Anyway, 18 to 11 was your halftime score. Pumas showing some real grit. Two pens early in the second half got them to 18, 17, 17 points. However, was all the Pumas had in them today. And it was an ecstatic 32,000 plus fans on hand to see the Curry Cup return to the city of roses for the first time in four years, 25 to 17 at the end. Okay. Bringing us all the way back here to North America for the major league rugby elimination games. We started with an epic clash. It was Seattle hosting Houston. The Seattle Seawolves, of course, are two time winners of the MLR shield, but you don't get trophies based on past performances. So they would need to take this Houston team very seriously if they wanted to advance and take on San Diego next weekend. Rather than trying to sum up, uh, sum up these fixtures myself, I'm going to rely on Joe Harvey, who does the write-ups for the main MLR website. And I've added that link to the show notes as well. Joe writes, quote, At the Starfire Sports Complex, the Seattle Seawolves bettered the Houston Sabercats to progress to the Western Conference Final, taking on the San Diego Legion in a week. Alan Clark's team continued their fine form from the regular season to book themselves on a flight to Southern California. Early on, Seattle rode an early Houston storm. Davey Kutza raced across the whitewash as the Sabercats launched a lethal attack from close range. Did I just say lethal attack? Uh, although the score was chalked off as Loritz uh, van de Schiff was deemed to obstruct opposition defenders marching up the field in the minutes that followed, the Seawolves would break the deadlock thanks to an AJ Alatimu penalty kick undeterred by the tumultuous start of the proceedings. Houston, uh, Houston's early physical dominance continued more drives towards the try line resulted in a yellow card for Seattle's uh, Sam Matenga. The probing passages of play after seeing Dom Aquina crossing in the corner, clearly disappointed for the, their opening gambit. Seattle surged ahead of their visitors. Still down to 14 players, Charles Elton restored the lead for his team with a close-range score, and Adrian uh, Karelsa's run-in before the break put 10 points between the two teams. Starting the second period strongly, Seattle extended that lead further with back-to-back Alatimu penalties as the Sabercats struggled to regain momentum. As the clock struck the 50-minute mark, Houston struck back, crossing thanks to the brilliance of their fly half. Kutza saw open field, kicked the ball downfield, and collected it to score before converting his effort too. Gideon Van Wick was the next benefit from Houston's kicking play. Finding holes to attack, the Seawolves failed to gather a chip through from uh, Gurney Lobachanya, I think it is, the powerful number eight, dragging defenders with him to score. To arrest their second half slide, Seattle's campaign... Uh, <laughs> Seattle's captain, sorry, uh, Reichert Hatting, dotted down with just over 10 minutes to play. Hatting was involved in J.P. Smith's late try for the home side, too, benefiting from loose Houston hands. Lopetti Ayasea flung the ball to Jeremiah Sio, who in turn found Rhino Herbst before Hatting got in on the act. Following the captain being dragged to the floor, the quick thinking of Smith saw him pluck the ball from the turf and turf and race over to score. Vendershift would put a full stopped proceedings with a late score for the Sabercats. The effort ultimately in vain with the game beyond 
doubt Seattle, unsurprisingly, progressing to go see San Diego next weekend. Uh, it's really hard for me to see Seattle getting this one. San Diego, they are a freaking juggernaut right now. So next up, obviously, was New York hosting D.C. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I was incredibly nervous about this one. As, as it really felt like the just the fates were stacking up to give us a repeat of last season. And that is not something I wanted to see. All New York teams are anathema to Boston sports fans. And there's, I don't know, there's something about this this MLR team that I, I hate with even less rationality than the usual amount. You know, maybe it's the fact that they change their name, logo, and branding every single year. Maybe it's the fact that until this year, they neither practiced nor played in New York, but just kind of tried to cash in on proximity to enhance their own image Maybe it's that they brought in absolute guns in former All Blacks like Nihi Milner-Scudder and Waisaki Naholo last year to magically solve their numerous shortcomings. But, you know, let's be honest. <laughs> it's mostly because it worked. They came to Fort Quincy for the Eastern Conference Final and knocked us out, a game I will never forget or get over. Holy cow, that sucked. Either way, I was very much hoping DC would steal this one Though in several WhatsApp groups, I was quoted as saying they had, quote, no chance whatsoever, unquote. But as the saying goes, they don't play these games on paper. So again, quoting here from Joe Harvey, who I realize, just as I'm saying this now, I should absolutely invite on the show, quote, Old Glory DC is joining the New England Free Jacks in the Eastern Conference Final. It was a startlingly quick start for the incumbent MLR champions who picked Old Glory DC apart with barely 60 minutes on the clock. However, Joaquin Diaz-Bonilla gave Old Glory the lead with the conversion before slotting a penalty several minutes later as DC's recovery from the opening moments continued. Following the water break, Bonilla had his kicking tee out once again to make the most of New York's ill-discipline. Before halftime, Bonilla struck a third penalty of the half. Just three points separated the two teams with plenty to play with 40 minutes still to play in Mount Vernon. Dylan Fawcett reopened the score in the second half. The hooker helped over the whitewash by O'Connor, with Sam Windsor striking the conversion to reignite the hometown crowd. In response, DC scored through uh, Bailey, the, the Canada international, handing off Ed Fidow on his way over the line. With DC pressure mounting, New York prop Sam Davies, not that Sam Davies, uh, saw yellow for early engagement at the mall, opting to scrum following that penalty. The visiting team's pressure shone through. The side awarded a penalty try by Frederick. Rico and Selmy, don't mention that name here, knowing that. Uh, to make matters worse for New York, Tavita Lange saw yellow, meaning the hosts would have to see out much of the game with reduced numbers. With less than two minutes to play, Old Glory secured their place in the conference final with a scorching Kurt Baker try. Unquote. Final scores in these contests were Seattle 37, Houston 26, and I am ecstatic to report in New York. It was the comment deleters, 33. DC, old and gory, 37. What a year it's been in the MLR. Okay, swinging all the way down to the other side of the earth, the Super Rugby Pacific Grand Final was this weekend. Oh my God, it was so good. Down in Super Rugby, it was time for the Grand Final on Saturday. The top two teams pitted against each other in the heart of the Waikato. And lest we forget, the Chiefs 
had the Crusaders number this year, beating them 31 to 10 on the opening weekend, then beating them again 34 to 24 in round 10. There had been a ton of rain leading up to this contest, but it, it gave a, it gave us respite for the, the start of this game, and the, and the field was, quote, holding up quite nicely, unquote, according to the comms. So the Chiefs had faced the Crusaders 46 times over their respective histories, with the Crusaders leading 27 games to 19. But in Hamilton, things were a lot closer, with the Chiefs winning 8 to the Crusaders 9. They also mentioned in every playoff matchup between these two sides, the home team had won every single encounter. So they said, quote, hope springs eternal. It reminds me of Bernard Jackman. It was kind of interesting that the Chiefs had the better record, and as I said, had already gotten the better of Crusaders twice this year, but even here at home, it just felt like they were massive underdogs. Also worthy of note, it was Sam Whitelock's final game as a Crusader, a team with which he debuted in 2010, racking up 180 appearances and a record-setting 24 playoff matches. What a career it's been for the perennial All-Black as things kicked off, the cowbells were out in full force, filling the FMG with their cacophonous clatter. I was well and truly fired up. It was a finals-worthy refereeing crew as well, with Angus Gardner and Nick Barry in assistant roles under Ben O'Keefe. The comms set the stage beautifully, saying, quote, All the ingredients are there. History, rivalry, emotion, strategy, physicality, outrageous talent a sellout crowd it's all there it's all in the mix unquote and i swear i almost got choked up i was so excited what a matchup both teams were just sort of feeling each other out early on the crusaders they were showing a shortened a really shortened but very effective line out as they pushed towards chiefs territory given an easy shot at goal they decided they wanted more putting it into the corner just around the seven minute mark but after being rebuffed several times they eventually settled for three moanga getting his 1215th super rugby point fourth all time behind bowden barrett mornay stain and of course dan carter who had almost 500 more points no way anyone ever catches up with that record are you kidding me so soon after a scary moment as anton leonard brown with a head-on-head -head tackle on mcleod got a yellow card eligible for further review it felt like a potential turning point just before eight, 10 minutes even had elapsed the chiefs they were giving away penalties like party favors they couldn't seem to find any go forward a very sluggish start for them of course my writing that seemed to trigger something, and after finally getting into Crusaders' territory, a penalty gave Damian McKenzie a shot at the post. Side stat, those three points brought McKenzie into fifth place for all-time Super Rugby playoff points with 117, <laughs> but again, still not even halfway to Dan Carter's mind-boggling 298. Anyway, that, that brought us to the end of the first quarter of play. The team's tied at three a great contest a poor decision by will jordan allowed the chiefs to tear the ball away with a massive tailwind it was sean stevenson picking a gorgeous line to to just slice through the crusaders defense to score the first try of the night but they still couldn't get out of their own way on defense luke jacobson getting a yellow card for too many infractions they'd be down a player for another 10 minutes cody taylor made them pay immediately his 41st try for the Crusaders, the most ever for a forward, by the way, making it 10-8 to 8 after Moaga somehow missed a real gimme of a conversion. 
Somehow, the only people in the entire arena who didn't notice a pass going, you know, a full three or four meters forward were the officials. And the ensuing drive saw the Crusaders taking a lead, a clever try from Richie Mwanga, who'd convert his own score to cement his place for most points scored against the Chiefs with 139 all time, 193, I should say, all time. The crowd was still very angry about the non-call, as well they might be. At the break, it was 10 to 15 and very much anyone's game. Very early in the second half, it was Narawa blazing down the sideline to put the home team back in front. Another penalty for McKenzie extended the advantage to 20 to 15 with about a half hour to go, but it was a possible reversal of fortune soon thereafter. McKenzie going badly offside during a lineout, leading to a disallowed try and a great deal of territory for the visitors. Would they be able to take advantage? The answer was no, as some, some mighty defense by the Chiefs just got them a goal line dropout, and they were suddenly right back in attacking position in Crusaders' territory as we entered the final quarter. The benches emptying with subs for both sides. They showed an incredible stat at that point. Chiefs had had just five lineouts to that point and had only secured two of them, while the Crusaders had 20 and had nailed 18. What a difference at 68 minutes. I mean, as a viewer, you almost symbiotically felt the exhaustion you saw writ large across every face and every body on the pitch. We were down to, as the comms said, the championship minutes. Crusaders, they garnered a penalty inside the home team's 22 and just needed a converted try to steal a victory for yet another trophy. Chiefs desperately clinging to the prize 20-15. to 15. Pounding on the door, it was another penalty advantage to the guests. That experience and confidence seeming to grow as the clock wound inexorably down. Quote, time to man the barricades once again for the Chiefs, unquote, said the comms. What a freaking game we had. But, my friends, a cynical infraction from Sam Kane, of all people, saw the Chiefs down to 14 players for the third time on the night, a potentially devastating loss as the Crusaders continued to smash and pound their way closer and closer to pay dirt. And uh, how good is Cody Taylor? He made at least four consecutive perfect line-out throws right in those last few minutes, despite being clearly and obviously exhausted. The mental toughness of the Crusaders team, it just can't be overstated. The driving ball finally powered them through to hammer down a try to tie things up with maybe seven minutes left with a conversion to come. Mwanga with his little I am a robot, I will kick this little routine. He slotted it through perfectly, giving his team a late lead and perhaps another championship. Holy cow, I was sweating. A penalty right at midfield gave McKenzie a very long-range chance if they wanted it, and he calmly lined it up. Damien, what a great year for him. I don't want to be a stickler, but Ben O'Keefe called 20 seconds on the timer, and then McKenzie absolutely did not get it away in time. He must have taken 40 seconds, still bothering to put in that little smile movie does after long after the 20th second had passed, but it was all moot because he thumped it short. It didn't quite get there. Despite butchering another lineout, it was still Chiefs ball, their last opportunity of the season. But a breakdown penalty would spell the end to their hopes for the year. Crusaders claiming control with just a half minute to go. Holy crap, what a contest. Moanga calmly 
watched the clock wend its way to 80 as he lined up a nail in the coffin penalty. Quote, the Scott Robertson dynasty ends as it began in triumph. The Crusaders champions once again, unquote, said the comms as despair took over the wrung out home team, the crowd in disbelief, Chiefs failing to come through. There's been a lot of talk about the officiating after this one. I feel like it was pretty fair. I think the Chiefs shot themselves in the foot. I, I hoped they had won, but it was the Crusaders again. That makes it seven in a row completely insane. Well, my friends, by that music, you will, of course, know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. This week, the award goes to Cody Taylor. Mr. Taylor, your two tries set the gold standard for scoring in the Super Rugby Final this weekend, but it was the things you did without the ball that made the big difference wreaking havoc at the breakdown, snatching turnovers, winding up the opposition on a night when they were begging to give away penalties, and through it all, you were an absolute rock at the line-out delivering, and I'm not even kidding here, 21 unanswered solid throws, 100% record to secure a late win for your record-breaking side. Just an unreal performance all around by you. So, Cody Taylor, congratulations to you for you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck. Well done, sir. Okay, that brings us to our updates and previews. And you know what? <laughs> the preview section is looking a little bit threadbare this week. There's like there's a couple of cobwebs in the corner. I'm just there's like a can of something, but I'm not sure what it is. I'm probably just going to leave it there. Maybe push it back further. Anyway, we're down to just the one competition that we actively follow here on the Scrum of the Earth with the MLR Conference Finals taking center stage for next weekend out west. We'll see an absolute clash of titans with two-time champion Seattle headed down the coast to face record-setting San Diego Legion at the Snapdragon. <sighs> that one's going to be epic. And, of course, I will be there. It'll be my beloved Free Jacks making their final appearance at Fort Quincy for this season, welcoming DC Old Glory. I am well and truly fired up for that one. But I'm, you know what? I'm zipping my lip. I'm making no predictions whatsoever so as to not anger any powers that be in the universe who might be cosmically listening. You want to tempt the wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing? <sighs> well... My friends, that, that does it for yet another week. We are getting very close to two years on the show, by the way. No breaks, by the way. No rest for me. No rest for the wicked. I, I guess that makes me the wicked. Anyway, as we approach full-on summer, the rugby continues to dry up. If you, if you sort of crane your neck out the window a little bit and sort of squ 
squint really hard, you will see a couple of things on the horizon, like the National Provincial Championship in New Zealand, the Farrah Palmer Cup also in New Zealand, the boringly named Rugby Championship, and, you know, a smattering of international warm-ups in the lead-up to Rugby World Cup 2023. In the meantime, I have a few special guests lined up to sort of keep us talking about rugby as we all sit in front of our noisy air conditioners, watching the dogs lying sort of stretched out on the tile floor. So, as always, thank you again for coming along to all of you across the globe. Cheers. Talk to you soon. And be well.